Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Follow Unchained on Twitter at Unchained underscore pod. We can find all sorts of content ranging from my weekly newsletter to updates on my upcoming book and a whole lot more. In today's episode, we turn the tables. This recording features me as the guest. It's from a recent Q&A I did with the On Deck Podcaster Fellowship about how Unchained got its start, how I use my journalism background in my interviews, and what my tips are for aspiring creators. It was a great discussion and a fun change of pace to be a guest on the show instead of the host. Now, on to the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by EY Blockchain. Ernst & Young is committed to supporting integration of the world's business ecosystems on the public Ethereum blockchain. The Crypto.com app lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% interest on your Bitcoin and 14% interest on your stablecoins, paid weekly. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. The link is in the description. Kuiper's Dynamic Market Maker, DMM, is the first DeFi protocol designed to adapt to market conditions to optimize fees, maximize returns, and enable extremely high capital efficiency for liquidity providers. I can tell like you've been uh, both a student of journalism and just podcasting, and, and you approach podcasting from more of a journalism's point of view than a lot of people who are starting out now, including uh, a few of us. Um, so welcome to ODP. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Awesome. So so let's get started. Um, one thing we're like super curious about is if you look at podcasting in general, crypto is probably one of the most crowded spaces. And some might say, and we've had other speakers talk about how being one of the top shows is usually just a function of being early and just consistent. But I can tell like you, you're, there's, there's deeper sort of like decisions that you've made that have made your show one of the top ones. So take us deeper, like on a broader strategic level, how have you thought about positioning and differentiating yourself? So I would say that in the beginning, I actually probably did benefit from being early. However, I wasn't the first. And I think at that time, the way that I benefited was that I had this journalistic approach, which was new at that time. And I think it's an approach that can draw in a broader audience than the existing podcast at that time could have because many of them were maybe like a little bit more technical or they were just sort of like a kind of like talk radio or something. And because I had the journalistic approach, I think people felt that if they were totally new to the space that they could kind of have a little bit more to latch onto that it wasn't just people talking over their heads because, you know, uh, if my guest said something and it wasn't something that would be obvious I would ask them, you know, what is it? Or I would jump in with an explanation and I still do that today. So I've had different um, audience members or fans come up to me and say, oh, you know, 
your, your show is like one that I feel like I can share with my friends and they can still get it because you take the time to explain. And I also would say that since then, um, there's just something that I do very naturally that I realized has distinguished my show. And I realized this again, by people's comments to me, I didn't realize that this was something that I did any differently from anybody else, but after a while, I began to realize that people would talk to me about what they were calling my uncomfortable questions <laughs> or sometimes they would say they were just tough questions or whatever. And essentially it's, you know, what it sounds like where if I'm interviewing somebody and there's some aspect of their work, maybe that they may not want to talk about or that, you know, is a little bit challenging for them. I'm not afraid to ask about it. And like I said, I didn't even have an awareness maybe that I was making people uncomfortable. I I wasn't even like thinking about whether or not the questions were tough. I was just thinking about what are the good questions or like, what's an, what would be an interesting conversation or what it is that, what, what is it that people would really want to know? Like those were the kinds of questions I was asking myself, but then I guess it led to these questions that people perceived as being uncomfortable or tough or whatever. And yeah, I mean, I don't know if anybody in the audience has, uh, you know, was like a philosophy major or anything like that, but that, part of my major was kind of in that realm. And um, when you, you know, spend hours a week in small groups, just like discussing ideas and challenging what other people say, or, you know, questioning things like, I don't know, maybe I'm just very comfortable doing that. Um, <laughs> and I think some of my friends are too. So um, it's probably just not that different from how I live. But I think also because I am a journalist, I don't have any notion that the people I'm interviewing are like my friends or that I want to be friends with them or that I can be or you know, I kind of know that my place is to be sort of like the stand-in for my audience and to just, like I said, ask what it is that they want to know. And so I think that's another reason why I became known for that. And I think that's why people really appreciate my shows. I've had so many people come up and say things like, you know, just that they feel they learn so much more from my shows because I do that or that they feel... Yeah, because I mean, you know, think about it in crypto, like people oftentimes, I mean, it depends on who I'm interviewing, obviously, but a lot of these people um, are or can be can can be making money from uh, everyday people. And so it is kind of a good thing to to question them and, and be a little bit skeptical and do that on behalf of my audience. So in that regard, I feel like that's how I've distinguished myself. Once I became aware of it, then, yeah, I. I understood that that was what I brought to the table and I began to realize, oh, right. Yeah. If I compare myself to the other shows, like they don't really do that. So, you know, and so in that regard, I, you know, I do feel that's how I've been able to differentiate myself in the space. And I think one thing that's so interesting about that is this applies across like interview shows or uh, narrative shows, because it's all about getting a good story. I'm curious, like what are other experiences or, or, or principles or techniques that you've brought from your journalism background into podcasting? Probably thorough research. The way that I like to describe how to create a podcast is like writing an article in reverse. And so for an article, maybe you would actually interview kind of the main actors in it and then kind of fill in around by interviewing like other sources. But here I kind of have to do everything up front and then like perform the article at the end with the person, you know, it's like, I generally go in 
kind of like already knowing what they're going to say at different points for various questions. And of course, you know, sometimes I ask a question and then like they answer three questions at once or, you know, whatever, like, you know, it's not like I'm literally predicting what they're, you know, but I just mean, I have a a general idea in my head of like what I want it to look like, you know? And and then of course, I mean, yeah, there are questions where maybe I won't know what they're going to answer, but it's like one of those ones where I'm like, Oh, they haven't answered this before, or I haven't seen anybody ask them this before or that kind of thing. So in that regard, like, I think the way that I, kind of synthesize all the news. And and when I say that, I don't even mean just like what it is that they're working on, but I will often also kind of zoom out and I'll like look at what else is going on in the space and how that interacts with like their world. And so I feel like that often leads to more interesting questions. So instead of just like narrowly focusing on like what they're up to, like bringing in these other events that will affect them. And I think people find that interesting as well. And then the other thing is that I... Um, also do like what I call kind of like topic shows, you know, generally I'll have kind of like two different guests and they sort of discuss this topic together. And I feel like picking the right people and kind of like, you know, making sure that they kind of have slightly different viewpoints. I mean, I don't always do this, but after a while I realized like, oh yeah, it is a little bit better if if they're kind of coming at it from different angles. And then, and then they, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to make it like some like throw down or, you know, I mean, if they do that, great, but, but it's just like, the more perspectives and the more that they kind of engage engage each other and push back at each other, I feel like the more interesting the conversation is. So that's another another way because you know obviously in journalism you do try to get different perspectives in an article and and kind of that creates a, a, a bigger picture of what's going on. And so when you're thinking about who to bring in or like who the person is, how are you sort of either like testing or filtering for whether they're going to be the right guests who are going to have different viewpoints and actually like push back against each other? Or just like what we see in most panels, just like everyone just agrees and it's the same thing. So a couple of different ways. It sort of depends on what is going on in my life or like how well I know the person ahead of time. But if I don't really know them at all, I will, you know, look at whatever it is that they've put out. Like it could be their tweets or their articles or their other interviews. Um, You know, I will check out their YouTube, like whatever it might be, other podcast interviews. Other times I actually want to do like pre-interviews with people, especially if I haven't heard them talk before, but for certain things, just because, I mean, now I've, it'll be six years that I've been covering this space in the next six weeks. You know, that's like long enough where (laughs) at this moment, I feel like I kind of generally know for not for everything, obviously, because this space is going so fast that it's like not possible to keep up everything going on right now. But for so many things, I do feel like I generally know like, oh, like that's the person who is like really good on this topic or like has that viewpoint or or whatever. So, yeah. So in that regard, it's like mental Rolodex. <laughs> Something I'm curious about, I loved your articulation of why your audience likes you asking tough questions, but I'm curious why the guest likes it or how you get around the fact that there are a lot of guests that don't enjoy tough questions as much. I always think back to... If you're looking at all the big clubhouse shows that exist right now, if you listen to what people are saying in the subtext of the promotion, it's that, oh, yeah, with clubhouse, it's just friendly and it's just chill and you're not trying to do gotcha or anything like that. So there's clearly a model for people expecting not to be pushed. So you have all this credibility. You know, you're at Forbes. You have so many podcast downloads. It's obviously a valuable platform. How would you advise someone who's new and doesn't have your street cred to think about pushing and tough questions? when oftentimes they're going to feel a credibility gap with their guests? 
You know, that's an interesting question. So I, I really think it goes back to how I didn't know that I was asking tough questions. Like when I was asking those questions, and even now when I do, I'm not trying to put the guest on the spot. I'm I'm not trying to make it a gotcha moment. I literally just want to know. <laughs> like, like I'm just curious. I just think it's a good question. I, I don't have an attitude about it. Like I, it's really just a genuine sense of curiosity that I have. And it, it kind of goes back to what I was saying about maybe how in college, like I'm just so used to having these discussions where people challenge each other's ideas and statements in a very neutral way. And like, there's no hard feelings about it afterward. It's just like, you just go back and forth and like, you say something and the person's like, well, I disagree with you because blah, blah, blah. And then, and then you, you point back, well, you know, you're missing da, da, da. And then I don't know, maybe just because I'm, I'm so used to that. And, and I have a lot of my friends and I talk that way to each other. And, and frankly, I think we all think it's fun. And so maybe when I have these questions for my guests and I'm not doing it in a way where I am trying to catch them in anything or, or whatever. I mean, obviously now I do, now that people have said to me, oh, those are, you ask these uncomfortable questions or tough questions. Of course, now I have an awareness, but then when I do it, I just try to stay neutral because it's how I feel. I, I don't have an agenda, but I do feel like it's a good question. I do feel like generally there's somebody who probably has some kind of position of power where they should be, you know, I don't, I don't want to say held accountable because that means like they've done something wrong, but more just like when you have that position of power, like it is, you know, something that you take on and that responsibility to answer questions where, you know, maybe you did something that wasn't, you know, totally towing the line with, with what your job should be or, you know, whatever. Um, and I feel that that just comes with that role. And I feel like a lot of those people know that that comes with that role. And so to me, it's just a moment where now they can have the opportunity to explain what happened then or whatever it might be. And it is true. Sometimes people get mad. I've definitely, definitely had guests who were mad. I have had somebody who threw a major tantrum that lasted over half an hour. We had to spend that time convincing the person to go on with the interview. And I kind of regret not just releasing the moment where this person was like, I'm quitting. I'm, I'm not going on with the interview, but you know, uh, we, I, we didn't do that. We just persuaded the person to go on because I, I literally had a half an hour's worth quite a, more of questions to ask this person and was genuinely curious to get the answers. And so that's what I did in order to get the answers. And, you know, I've had, you know, I'm friendly with some of my sources, like, you know, maybe we'll go uh, like get a coffee or a lunch or whatever it might be. And one of them, when I asked a tough question during the interview, I think was really surprised because we are friendly. And after we wrapped said like, you ambushed me. And, you know, I, that wasn't my intention. As I said, it's just, I thought it was something that probably people in the audience would want to know. And I thought it would give this person an opportunity to explain um, what happened at that time. And so, you know, my advice for people who uh, are looking to do that is let your curiosity drive you. Don't have an attitude. Try to be neutral. And um, frankly, I think the reason why people like my show is because I do put the audience first in that regard. You know, I understand that sometimes when I ask those questions that maybe the sources won't come back to me or they won't agree. But, you know, 
there are many ways to do journalism and sure the podcast requires their participation, but in the future, if I like write an article or whatever, then that won't require their participation. So it's not like I cut myself from covering them forever. You know, I just feel like in that moment, you know, my duty is to do my, the best job I can for my audience, which is to ask the best possible questions. And so that's just the way that I operate the show. I, I love that because it, it's sort of like you're being that audience advocate, whether the guest likes it or not. And, and sort of like related to that, I think currently like it's really hot on Twitter to like cut dunk on gatekeepers and editors. But as someone who's been on both sides of the table, what can sort of this new breed of online creators learn from more traditional models? I, I mean, I really consider myself coming from the traditional model and I know that I'm independent, but I truly credit all the skills that I have from my traditional training. I have worked with some amazing editors who I really, really feel like I would not be as good as I am today if it weren't for them. Same with, you know, like a lot of journalists even make fun of people who go to journalism school and they say, well, it's not necessary. And yeah, okay, maybe it's not necessary. But for me, I had such a wonderful experience. I learned so much. I had amazing professors, amazing classmates. I I just really, I, I came away feeling like I'm definitely a better journalist now. Like this was worth it. So I would say that actually for me, what is a little bit challenging is that in this kind of new era, um, the journalist is kind of supposed to be, or not the journalist, but but see, that's the other funny thing. Now that I'm not at a normal publication, at a traditional publication, sometimes I, people, I see people calling me like a podcaster and a little bit like, oh, okay. I mean, I have a podcast, but I consider myself a journalist who, you know, writes and does podcasts and videos now and, you know, just uh, kind of works in different mediums. But the work is still the same, regardless of whatever medium it is that I'm using. And I also see that people sometimes say, oh, she left journalism to do her podcast. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm still doing the journalism. <laughs> For me, the the kind of little struggle that I have sometimes is that I feel like because now my brand is sort of associated with me as a person, that's just a little bit weird. And, and it's something that is just a little bit more challenging for me to navigate because obviously normally as a journalist, like it's not about you. It's about, you know, the story, the source or not the source, but the, the uh, guest on your, in, in your show or whatever it might be. And I realized, oh, people do kind of want more of me. I literally saw a comment like that on my YouTube recently where I interviewed another journalist about the Coinbase IPO. And we made it a little bit more like a conversation because it's like two business journalists talking about the Coinbase direct listing, I should have said. And um, somebody commented, oh, it was so nice hearing more of your perspective rather than just having you ask the questions. And I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Also, I feel like, you know, going back to how I distinguish myself amongst this crowded space, some of the other people in this space, um, their show is more like about them or whatever. And so I like a part of me is, you know, just a little bit like, oh, am, you know, should I go that route? But then, um, yeah, it, it, I don't know, because it's something that I'm not used to. I, I really like doing the work like that for me is super fun. And I think the other thing that I find interesting about that kind of like new area or new line that I have to navigate is that it made me realize because people are often asking me my opinion or whatever 
And it made me realize, oh, I actually don't have that many opinions, <laughs> which I know might be a surprise to people. But I think it's because I am trying to keep myself open to whichever way the story might go. So if I dismiss something too early and before I know enough about it, then I might miss a big story. Or like there were times in crypto where people were like, you have to do a story on how da is a scam. And for whatever reason, at least there's one big one that I can think of. I did not have time at that time to go look into it, but people would ask me about it. But, you know, I always just felt like, because I had never looked closely at it, I couldn't have a judgment on it. Like the reporter in me would want to see like the data and then come to a conclusion. But just like from all the rumors flying around, I couldn't say either way. You know, I would want to look at, I would want to spend like a month researching it before I had any conclusions. So yeah, it's like for anything that I would say, I would want to back it up. And so if I haven't done the research, then, you know, I'm probably not going to have an opinion. So yeah, so I think that's just another way in which, you know, when you ask me, how do I take from the two sides? I'm a little bit like, like definitely a lot of skills from the one side, but the other, I'm like trying to figure that out right now. Laura, here's something I'm super curious about. You're writing a book right now, comes out in November uh, of this year. Um, Good luck. I know that this is a tough process, but probably a good year to write a book and have time to get locked down and focus. Could you talk a little bit about I know you always had a journalism career beforehand, so your book contract isn't fully attributable to your podcast. But that being said, podcasts drive book sales. There's actually a lot of industry interest in this. Like my podcast is like mildly successful when I've been reached out to by a publisher. Like that being said, like when I actually had the conversation, I know there are some people in ODP who are interested in this path for themselves. I had no idea what to say. The industry standard isn't being set yet with the expectation um, so can you just speak a little about a bit about like the process of your book and the context of your podcast? For me, I would say probably they're not super related, but I, I think what it did was it brought credibility that I know this space and I could deliver on what I was proposing. If I were to kind of generalize my experience into advice for people who want to use their podcast to get book deals, what I would say is that um, I'm for so. I'll just say one quick thing up front, which is that, so for fiction books, for like novels or whatever, or short story collections, you have to write that first. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you got to put the work in up front and send the completed manuscript. And unfortunately that's the way that goes, but that's how it, it is done. I mean, I think if you're a first time author and, and you would use that to get an agent who would then pitch, I'm presuming people will want to do nonfiction books. And the way that that works is that you write a proposal which is obviously a lot less work than than doing the full-on book. But you have to talk about, obviously, what you're going to say, give like a sample table of contents, and maybe even a sample chapter or two, and uh, include, you know, who you plan to interview, stuff like that. But then also you need to talk about the audience that you're, and who you're going to market this to. Because the book proposal is really about like selling this as a product, And so this is where, like, for instance, your agent, whoever it is that you get will be just a godsend because they're the ones who know how publishers think about these things, about selling books as products and what's going to sell. And so for me, you know, I I was on the like, well, these are all the cool crypto things going on that (laughs) should be in this book. Um, But my editor or not my editor, my agent, you know, kept kind of like asking me, okay, well, 
how can we think about who's going to buy this and who the audience will be? And so I would imagine for podcasters who know who their audience is or uh, what their interest in books uh, is, then that would also be something that would feed into the proposal and help and help sell a book. So, you know, the more knowledge that you have about your audience, like I, I run surveys on my audience, on my podcast very regularly, actually, for that reason. So that way I, not I mean not just for this, but for multiple reasons, because I'm actually, I use that. That's actually a really helpful tip, by the way, for people who want to do podcasts is to run surveys um, because I have used that to like introduce new features and people love them. It's like literally just whatever you can tell people are requesting, like you should do that. Uh, I, I've been doing that. Um, but through that, you know, I can also see like, oh, it tends to be people who work in tech and people who work in finance and, uh, you know, a strong segment of people who already work in the industry, that that's my audience, you know, stuff like that. You uh, can use all that data to make your book proposal stronger because you'll just have more knowledge about who it is that might write your book probably than the average book author uh, or uh, book proposal writer will. So, so quick, quick tangent. One of the things we talk about in ODP too is like just the importance of understanding your audience and talking to them. Can you share some of your like favorite questions when you do the service with your audience? And also what are some of your favorite learnings that have come from them? I remember, this is just such a silly one because it seems so obvious and I'm a little bit like, duh, why didn't I think of that? But one of the questions we asked the first year and, and maybe we still do is, you know, just like, how did you hear about the show? And I didn't have, you know, I did a search in Apple podcasts or, or on my podcast platform as an option. And like, obviously that was like a huge percentage and I was like, oh, right. I guess I just thought like people would hear about it from Twitter or Reddit or, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, but no, they just did a search in a podcast app. Um, so that was kind of like a, a funny one. But I think, you know, what has led me to make some changes is stuff like, you know, I don't remember the exact phrasing, but, you know, how can the Unchained podcast serve you better, essentially? And then it's just like a free form thing. That was how, so at the end of my short podcast, which comes out on Fridays, I do now what's called the weekly news recap, where I just pick what I think are the top crypto stories of the week and then write up a little um, blurb for each one, kind of like a little news item. And then I just literally read it aloud on the show. And um, people requested that in the survey. And um, then the next year I asked, do, do you like, you know, how like you guys requested this is the format that we're using good for you? And like, yes, they they love it. So so that was, you know, really good. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what other questions. Um, for people who want to look for sponsors, we did also have some demographic questions, which helps us then when we pitch our sponsors to say, like, this is who our audience is and help explain, like, why they're appealing to the sponsor. So um, so I think that's also a good thing to ask about. Question, and we spoke about this for a second beforehand, but you had a really interesting story about um, how your podcast actually came about with your ownership and the way the Forbes model works. This is really relevant for people here because once again, multiple people have had questions about forming, launching a podcast where they're employed somewhere else and then navigating that relationship. So I just love to hear you recount for everyone the story there. Yeah. So when I started the podcast, what happened was I was a freelancer at Forbes at that time. 
And I saw that Forbes had just come out with a bunch of podcasts. And I said to my editor, hey, I want to do one. (laughs) And they had launched with the season of 12. And so I became the 13th, lucky 13, by the way. Let me just say that. (laughs) So because I was a freelancer at the time, I got the standard Forbes freelance contract, which is an unusual contract actually in the media industry. So typically when you're a freelancer for major publications, the most common contract you'll get is what's called work for hire, where um, the contract basically says like all the work that you do for us, we'll own it. Like we'll own the copyright and whatever. But the Forbes model is different where I'm sure you're aware people can become bloggers on the platform where, or, or a contributor where you are able to just publish your own column under the Forbes brand on right on the, right on the website. And so the kind of contract that those uh, contributors sign is not a work for hire contract. In that contract, they own all the work that they produce. And Forbes, well, so I don't know what it is now, but at the time that I signed it, it was something like Forbes wanted exclusive rights for X number of days. And then after those days, you could resell your work. And I used to resell my work, actually. So when the podcast came around, the contract that they gave me was one in which it said that I owned the copyright to the podcast. And the hilarious thing is, so I have a lawyer now who vets all my contracts. I didn't even have a lawyer look at this contract. I just signed it. Uh, You know, I had such a good relationship with my, uh, by the way, shout out to Matt and Janet. I don't know if they still listen to my show, but I love my editors at Forbes. They're amazing. And um, I just wanted to give a moment of appreciation for them. But the point is that, yeah, I just signed it. And what happened was after the first season, Forbes didn't want to continue my show. And I then said, okay, well, I love doing this. So I'm going to continue it. I'm going to find my own sponsor. So I found a sponsor who took on the full year of sponsorship for the year 2017. That was the year that obviously crypto took off. And by the end of the year, there were way more downloads on the show than there were at the beginning. And um, by that point, I was a full-time staffer at Forbes. And when I had joined there in the summer of 2017, I had said, oh, you know, if you want, you could run ads against the show, but not until after 2017, because I promised the sponsor they would have the exclusive ads on the show for the full year. Well, someone who was working for me at that time on the show at one point was like, Laura, do you realize like now with the downloads that this is how much money you could make? From the show, and I had no idea. And I was like, oh, wow, okay, this is more money than I make at my job. And I had always wanted to write a book. And I, at that time, had a good book idea already. And so I was like, oh, this is perfect. I can quit the job, and the podcast doesn't take me five days of work a week. So I can just do the pod in a couple days and then do the book the other days. And so that's what I did. So I quit. And because I owned the copyright outright, um, I could just take the podcast with me. And yeah, I hired a sponsorships manager who manages all sponsorships for the show. And then I started my book proposal and the book sold in the summer slash fall of that year. That whole process takes a little while. So um, it wasn't just like a one and done thing, but uh, it sold. And then, yeah, I've been working on the book ever since along with podcasts. So, yeah, but I realized I totally lucked out because um, I'm not going to name who this person is, but I heard through the grapevine that another journalist who started 
one of the, it must be one of the top 10. I've, I haven't looked at the charts, but it must be one of the top 10 shows like on a, 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 like across the world or something. I don't know. Or maybe just in its category. I'm not sure. It's definitely a very, very popular show. I heard that he uh, later said, oh, I will never do that again where I start a show and, and the uh, company owns it because I think eventually this person just had to walk away. For anybody who does start a show under the auspices of another company, I would definitely urge you if you have leverage to use it to uh, retain your copyright. Kyber's dynamic market maker, DMM, is a game changer in DeFi, being the first protocol designed to react to market conditions to optimize fees while providing extremely high capital efficiency for liquidity providers. Fees are adjusted dynamically based on market conditions to maximize returns and reduce the impact of impermanent loss. Liquidity providers can customize the pricing curve to create amplified pools that greatly improve capital efficiency and reduce trade slippage. Depositing tokens to earn fees is also fast and simple, with this liquidity easily accessible by dApps, aggregators, or other users. Visit dmm.exchange now. With over 10 million users, Crypto.com is the easiest place to buy and sell over 90 cryptocurrencies. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. If you're a hodler, Crypto.com Earn pays industry-leading interest rates on over 30 coins, including Bitcoin, at up to 8.5% interest and up to 14% interest on your stablecoins. When it's time to spend your crypto, nothing beats the Crypto.com Visa card, which pays you up to 8% back instantly and gives you 100% rebate for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. There is no annual or monthly fees to worry about. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 when using the code LAURA, L-A-U-R-A. The link is in the description. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Today's episode is sponsored by EY Blockchain. Ernst & Young is committed to supporting integration of the world's business ecosystems on the public Ethereum blockchain. Join our fifth annual Blockchain Summit and Education Series on May 18th to 21st for a deep dive into zero-knowledge privacy technologies, accounting, and tax rules, as well as the future of finance. Sign up and learn more at ey.com slash global blockchain summit or blockchain.ey.com. So another thing um, I'm curious about before we jump to sort of questions from the audience is um, I saw on Twitter recently that you've talked about not owning Bitcoin. And part of that is like, so you can write for the publications uh, from, from my understanding. 
I'm curious, like, what do you feel, uh, sort of like along those lines, in terms of like integrity and ethics, what are other things creators should be thinking about that maybe they're not, especially people who like maybe are young and just start a podcast and it blows up, right? Like they're not really thinking through these things. So can you talk a little bit about that decision and how that should apply to creators? Oh, maybe one of the first things that comes to mind is that, so when I, when I said that I quit Forbes and then I hired a sponsorships manager, there was a period of like, I think maybe one or two months where I didn't have that person or like six weeks or something where I didn't have that person in place. And I remember one of the first companies that reached out to put an ad on the show was, and I'm just going to say this outright because I did mention this on the show recently. <laughs> it was um, some kind of Bitcoin IRA. And I don't remember which company, which probably is a good thing. But anyway, what I do remember is that I was like, okay, I'll check this out. So I had a call with them and then they informed me <laughs> that the way that it works was that when they had this like special vehicle or whatever that allowed you to put like actual real Bitcoin in your IRA, <laughs> but then they charged a fee of 15% of the Bitcoins that you were transferring into the account. <laughs> and I was like, what? <laughs> and I just was like, I, I like cannot put an ad or not like, like, I mean, I was just like, no. Um, and, you know, that was like at that moment, you know, probably what maybe I, I, don't, I don't remember how early this was. So maybe let's just say it was like one of the only offers I had from a sponsor who wanted to like give me money to reach my audience, you know, you know, maybe if I'd been desperate for money, no, but even then I wouldn't have done it. <laughs> but the point is uh, for, I mean, it just goes back to what I was saying earlier, like do whatever's right for your audience, you know, don't, don't be like freaked out. Like I'm never going to make money. I have to take it wherever I get it. No, don't do that. If you put out a good show, it will work. Right. Um, you just, you just have to like keep going. And yeah, you know, I had the advantage at that point of having already had a year and a half, I guess, by then of having built up the audience for the show and whatever. So it, it just was a matter of time. I'm sure like if you're starting at zero and also trying to make it work financially, then then there will be pressure. But, um, you know, that was one of the things where like, I mean, there, there was really no question for me about whether or not I was going to do it, but I could see if I had been in a different place where I was literally just starting out, then I might've been a little bit confused for a moment and been like, what should I do? Um, so, you know, for some of the fellows, if they find themselves in that kind of position, then as I said before, do what's best for your audience. <laughs> I love that story because as I, we kind of talk about your recommendation is usually as good as your weakest sponsor. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Um, and with that, we'll jump to questions from the audience. Hey, Laura, just love your story. Thank you so much. Uh, I don't have a journalism degree. So for beginners like me, how would you say, how should they take a journalistic approach to podcasting? Like, what does that entail? So for me, uh, it goes back to what I said about how I think about if I were going to write an article, how would I do that? And for me, that's trying to make it comprehensive, not in such a way that it's so comprehensive, you're kind of almost going off topic. So you should have a, a vision in your mind of what it, what, what it is that you want to cover on the show. Mm-hmm. And then when you do your research, so, so, here, so here, here's basically what I do. I read like a lot. I, uh-huh. I just try to inhale, you know, a ton of content about whatever it is. Okay. Because I know what's going on in the crypto industry quite well. Yeah. I can spot like when I see something new, like, Oh, I haven't seen that before or, Oh, 
you know, it, it, like you kind of recognize when you've just heard stuff over and yeah. over again, or, you know, and, and obviously there is an element of that on the show, because like I said, I don't know how beginners some of my listeners are. And so there yeah. will probably be a portion of the show where I'm literally walking the guests through questions yeah. that they've answered before elsewhere, um, just to have them speak about their story or, or whatever. And just to give my listener the background that they need to maybe dive into the more interesting or meatier questions. Yeah. But for that part, if I see something, yeah, that I haven't seen before or that I know is in the news a lot or that I realize is um, kind of like, yeah, it just makes me curious, like, ooh, that could be a yeah. problem for them. How are they going to solve that? Then, you know, I, I want to make sure to cover ah. that on the show, right? And so um, sometimes what I'll do is I'll create an outline where mm-hmm. I just literally have topics like, you know, mm-hmm. background, uh, problem they're trying to solve. How are they going to resolve this issue? Or how is regulation going to affect it? Or, you know, what, what I, like I'm making these up, yeah. but, but like from reading, you kind of see like, oh, these are all the things that yeah. could affect this issue that I should cover. And then, yeah, then you just try to think what are the questions that will be the most interesting. Um, and sometimes, you know, you, you want multiple questions to cover that topic. And sometimes you really just need the one and then you can move on. So, yeah, I, that's, what I would say, and oh, and also sometimes what I'll do beforehand is I will reach out to different sources. And I'll be like, hey, I'm doing a show on da-da-da. Like, yeah. what do you think I should cover? Or like, what do you think I should ask this person? Yeah. Sometimes I even ask them on Twitter. Like if it's somebody yeah. who I, I feel like could get the audience very excited about the show, yeah. then I'll be like, hey, I'm interviewing like Vitalik Buterin in a couple days. What should I ask him? Or, yeah. you know, because, but then also because then you get the people who who like, spend more time on that person than you can because, or that I can, because I'm, I'm trying to cover the whole crypto ecosystem. Right. But then there are some people that they're like big ETH heads and they spend all their time thinking about Ethereum. And so they're just going to have like maybe a better question than I would. Right. And so, um, yeah. So I solicit questions. Sometimes I go in different chat groups and I'll ask people like, what do you think I should ask so-and-so or, or I'll just read chat groups and I'll do searches for that word. Like what are people saying about, you know, this ICO's issue with the regulator yeah. or what are people saying about that stable coin or, you know, whatever. Yeah. And, and I just kind of Google around, like, what are people saying in the chat rooms? Yeah. You know what I mean? Cause like, um, yeah. yeah, cause that, cause that's a little bit more, um, how do I put it? Like people don't know that yeah. they're being observed and this is what they're really thinking, that kind of thing. <laughs> I love so, it. No, this is yeah. perfect. It's almost like you're producing a movie. That's the analogy of so like laughing because I had that. <laughs> bulb in my moment in my head um quick question follow-up question how do you conduct the surveys on your podcast in the oh, service we you mentioned use, we use survey monkey which i'm just gonna flat out tell you it's really expensive it's like i forget it. it's it's close to 400 dollars. like every year when i have to renew that thing i'm like am i really paying this to do a survey wow. but um they have very good functionality and analytics so i'm just like but how do they get right. it like if i'm listening how would i get that link to that. Oh, Is it like oh. an email? So yeah, I promote it on the show and then they let oh, okay. you create a URL that's like easy to remember. So it'll be like survey monkey slash, you know, unchained pod 2021 or something. Oh, I see. I, like I, I can make up a URL that's catchy. Yeah. So yeah. And then I just put it in loud. the show notes. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Thank you. Thanks, JD. Alejandra, you're up next. Hi, Laura. How are you? Hi, Thank good. You. How do you choose um, a good podcast title a good podcast episode title 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is actually a really, really, really important step. So here's the deal about podcast titles. And, and this, this is something that comes from journalism too. So if you're a headline or, or title or the subject line of your email or whatever it is, isn't very good, then all the work that you put into that show, like not as many people are going to enjoy it. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so it's just kind of like, like, I remember one time I was working at this publication and I really, really, really wanted this one subject letter was subject line for the email newsletter, which is how the vast majority of the audience got our content. But for some reason, one of the under less popular headlines was the one that was put on the subject line. And I was so, so, so upset because there was like a really, really good article in there. And I was like, nobody's going to open this email. And we like put so much effort into this article. And, you know, and it, and it just was like, and it's a good article. And I was like, and it just was this feeling of like, wow, we put all this effort into this thing. And it's just like, a lot of it was wasted, you know? So yes, it's very important. So what I do is I actually use this online tool and um, it's, you can use it for free. They, they now suddenly in the last like week or two have a paid version of it. I, I d- haven't done the upgrade because it's kind of expensive. It's called something like coschedule.com headline analyzer. And it will literally like give you a score for the headlines, which I know sounds silly, but, um, but through that, yeah, you can kind of see like, oh, these, these headlines are just like maybe a little bit easier to grasp. And even actually just from running your headlines through the test, I feel like it just makes you, it just helps you learn better, like what works. I do see that some other people, because the other thing that you could do, which I sometimes have done, is I have a big guest and it's just like, I know my audience is going to like want to hear that guest. And I know they're going to be like excited if they see we discuss these different topics. And so sometimes people just put like, you know, big headline name, colon, topic everybody's talking about, like topic everybody's talking about, you know, that kind of thing. I tend to do a little bit less of that now, but those are kind of some of the the strategies I've seen. If you do have a big name, it's very, very good to put that obviously in the headline and and definitely up front is, is even better. So, you know, big name, colon, blah, blah, blah. Um, if I do that, sometimes I'll put like a little quote of something kind of juicy that they said, if it's short enough, because you don't want to make the headline too long either. If you make it too long, then, you know, it gets cut off in Google SEO and, you know, whatever. So you, it needs to be like short, but that's like another way. And then um, numbers can also do well. Like um, I recently did a show about personal finance and crypto, which I thought was super interesting. And I, I actually was excited because I used to cover personal finance. I was like, this is still in my wheelhouse. And I kind of like was excited because I, you know, just felt like, oh, like I can ask all these questions about these things that I used to, you know, interview people about in the past and crypto, which it was just fun. But, you know, I'm well aware that the average person like per finance advisor, financial advisor, like I'm not going to click on that. (laughs) So I um, threw in the headline that uh, financial advisors control $5 trillion of investor wealth. Because it's just like, hey, heads up, listen, you know, pay attention. This is a big topic. Like, you know, if we get this crowd on board into crypto, then they could get a lot of money into crypto. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, things like, 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 just think of things in that way. Um, You know, those guests, their names wouldn't be recognizable to my audience. 
So I didn't put their names, you know, I had just kind of like a catchy, catchy headline that had that big numbers to, to make people be like, Hey, you know, I, th- this it sounds important and interesting. Sometimes um, if you have the space, like I noticed that the New York times is doing this a lot where they have um, a headline that's like a two part headline where um, it starts with something and there's like a punchline. Mm-hmm. So if you just go right on their homepage right now, I bet you will see multiple examples of this. Like, I can't really think of one off the top of my head, but like, you know, maybe it poses a question and then the answer that they have is like something that you wouldn't expect. Or, um, you know, I don't know if I've been able to do that on my show, but, you know, I just noticed that for me, it's effective that as a reader of the New York Times, I'm like, oh yeah, I want to click on that, you know? (laughs) Um, So yeah, those are some of my tips. Uh, And actually one last thing I'll say is um, in terms of numbers, and I know this from like other work that I've done, people love things like it. Like if you were doing a a show that's kind of like tips for people, people love the kind of thing where it's like the number one reason why blah, 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 or the number one tip to do da, 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 or, or or it can be the top 10, you know, ways to blah, 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 whatever it is, but like smaller numbers like that do can do well. So yeah. Or the number like seven, like people love the number seven. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you so much, Alejandra and Laura. That was super helpful. Bia, you're up next. I love what you said about number seven. That's very interesting. (laughs) I just have a question on how, I mean, I'm sure you've interviewed a lot of people and how can you tell if someone is lying or not being genuine with their responses? Um, Are there things that if people are not journalists here, how can you tell if someone's lying or not Mm. giving the most authentic answer that you want for your show? That's interesting. So I think it depends on, well, can I ask what kind of show you have? Oh, sorry. My, my show's about relationships, but I'm just wondering if someone is like giving you a BS answer <laughs> and you can't call them out that way and be rude, but you want to push. So you're literally just asking me for my show. Uh, okay. okay. And in general, yeah. like I think people tend to say things and then it's not the right answer right away. It's like a PR answer or a polite answer. And you want to get the the good answer, the meaty answer. Okay. So that guest that didn't want to continue on with the show that one time, there was some, there, there was like a technical aspect to what they were building. And I asked them about it and they were describing it with this term that is kind of like a a buzzword now in the tech world, right? Like it's kind of like where the future of tech is going. But then when I asked them to describe the mechanics of it, it didn't it didn't fit that description of what that technology is. And so I was saying, well, how is that a blah, 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 hot buzzword thing? Because what you're describing is that's not it. And um, so I was just like kind of pointing it out factually that the description and the term that he was using to describe it were, were not the same. And so I think you can do that. Like you can kind of like stick to facts and just point out when something that they're saying is like a marketing buzzword that they've used, but that the facts don't match that. For other things, I don't know if I've had people who've lied necessarily. I have had instances where 
sometimes people are in a dispute and I ask them about it and then they um, say something about the other side. I typically try to reach out to the other side and just get a response and like insert that into the show. There is one time that I forgot to do that. And then we had to do that later. So obviously that was, you know, not my favorite moment of the, of the podcast. I I would say, listen intently. And in that moment, when you feel um, what it is that they're doing, if you are listening closely enough, then a question will naturally come to you that you can use to either call them out on it and ask them to be real with you. Or like, if it's like I was saying, a situation where, you know, the facts didn't support what he was saying, then just point out, hey, the facts are X and what you're saying is Y and, you know, they don't match. Yeah, I think it really depends on what type of show you're doing, actually. Um, very helpful. But, um, okay. <laughs> I was talking to another journalist and she was saying that sometimes people on Twitter or in the digital world are really good online, but when you get them as a guest, it's like you're trying to squeeze like a dry, like... I don't know, a tea towel or something out of it. And do you have anything that you do to warm them up? Because I know I hear people say like, say more, tell more. If they're good on Twitter, but not good on the show. (laughs) So I, so I, like I said, you know, will Google their name on YouTube and other podcasts if I haven't heard them speak before. But even if I find that in the other interviews I listen to, that they're kind of like reticent, or, or if I've done a pre-interview with them and I notice that they're way that they're that way, I literally just write like way more questions. <laughs> so let's say that for a normal show, I might have like one question for this one topic, and that's enough to like launch somebody into the whole topic. What I'll do is I'll write like five questions that are grouped together, where it's like, okay, if they stop, then I have a second one on that just approaches that from a different angle. You know, so it's like, you know, not only like, how did you do da da da, but also why and when and who was involved and like, you know, just or whatever, like I'm kind of making up like how, how big was it? How many da da da, how, you know, who did this or that? Like, like I'll literally just try to kind of like fill in what they might say and then make a question around it. (laughs) Um, But yeah, the truth is it actually is better if you can just find guests who are good talkers. Here's the deal. I'm sure everybody will already know this, but um, the people who work at the most important companies and have the most important positions, they're going to be the most reticent, but they're also going to be the the big fish names that you want to catch, right? So yeah, just have like way more questions for them <laughs> because you kind of know going in that they're going to be as tight-lipped as they can be. Well, not all of them, but it depends on what company they have and what their position is, but many of them will be. And so you know, that just requires in a way even more research sometimes, because sometimes then you'll want to be like very specific about like, you know, what you're asking them about. Like you might want to have numbers. You might want to have like incidents of like, Hey, when this happened, can you tell me blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, if you want to have the big names, then sometimes that's, that's the best way to go. I think it's really good and enlightening. But the last question I have is that you ask, you list a lot of questions and that's part of the curiosity that you're mentioning in the beginning of this um, session, are there other people that you find have that same curiosity that you have? Like, are there people that you look up to in terms of their curiosity that you've kind of emulated? Oh, that I've emulated for my show? Yeah, like uh, other journalists or, for example, like I like looking at um, Amanpour because she does a documentary in relationships. 
So her questions are fantastic. For yourself, do you look at other journalists or writers or? Okay. So for writers, for sure. Like literally for my book, I took my favorite book and I analyzed it. Like I wrote in the margins, how did this person do this? And then I tried to like use some of that for my book. For the podcast, it's been a little bit different. I would say that a journalist I really admire and whose whose show is similar to mine, and yet I wouldn't say that I emulate her, is Kara Swisher's show. Do you, I don't know if any of you listen to um, Recode Decode. Even though I wouldn't say that I'm kind of modeling myself against her, I learn a lot from listening to her. <laughs> it's just funny that I'm bringing this up because she's so different from me in her style. Like she states her opinions. She has opinions. That's that's like one big difference. She has opinions and she states them. Um, <laughs> and then another thing is she interrupts her. She will interrupt them a lot more than I do. That's another thing. For whatever reason, I try to do that a little bit less, but I do see that it's actually quite good the way she does it because She's like me and in, in that she, she, I think she also goes into the interview knowing what topic she wants to cover. And she has a vision of like how this is going to go in her head. So I can tell that sometimes what she'll do is she'll ask a question and then the person like basically answers it and she can see that they're just going to like wax on about it, but, but it's just like going to be more of the same. So she'll just cut them off and like move on to the next topic. And a part of me is like, Oh, I like, I, I, I kind of wish I could do a little bit more of that. And, and I do in a way, but, you know, I feel like she's, she's just like much faster. Oh, another person who's very good at that is Peter Kafka, who actually works for the same company. He does a journalist. It's like a media business show. Um, but he does the same exact thing. He cuts them off, moves on to the next topic. He's so here's the funny thing. And I don't know how much sexism plays into this, but if you look at the reviews on her show, people constantly complain that Kara interrupts her guests Okay. Peter Kafka literally does the same exact thing, probably to the same amount. And I checked out his reviews one time. (laughs) The only mention of interruption was somebody being like, Kara Swisher should take a lesson from Peter Kafka because she interrupts her guests way too much and Peter doesn't. And I was like, wait, have you listened to their shows? Like they both do it. But somehow the way Peter does it is it like just seems smoother maybe. But also I think the fact that Kara's a woman, I don't know. Um, uh, the other person that I would say I probably model myself after a little bit, even though, again, I don't. So Kara's show I actually listen to regularly. Uh, Terry Gross, I actually don't listen to that regularly, but I've heard her talk about her method. And when I heard her talk about it, I was like, oh, it's so similar to mine. <laughs> like she just kind of like reads voraciously and is like inhaling all this information and then just try to tries to be like, okay, how should this look? And so when I heard her talking about how she prepares, I was like, oh, that's so similar to what I do. But yeah, there, you know, there are other interviewers that I really like, but we just have different kinds of shows. So like, for instance, you know, Tim Ferriss, he's doing like tips and he wants their personal stories and he's like friendly with them. And, you know, it's just a different kind of thing. Like I my unfortunately my show isn't like that. I love his show, but you know, I'm not going to have that kind of relationship with the people that I interview. So, but yeah, that's what I would say. Thank you so much. That was so helpful. Awesome. Thanks. Bea. Touch it. I'm going to pass it back over to you. So, so since you mentioned the uh, sort of difference in reviews for, um, Kara and Peter, I, I think we would be remiss if we don't don't ask this, which is like, if you look at like both like crypto and podcasting, um, there's such um, like heavily like male dominated spaces. As someone who's like operated in both areas and like really like risen to the top levels, what can nascent uh, podcasters 
from sort of like underrepresented backgrounds like learn from your experience? Oh gosh, um, hmm, that's a good question. Here's why I'm a little bit stumped from the outset, but let me just get started talking. I feel like the fact that I started having that platform at Forbes already kind of meant that I already had like a little bit of a following. Like I already had people who were into my articles. And so in that regard, it was a little bit like they they already were interested in me for that reason. And so um, maybe the fact that I was a woman in, in a field that's male dominated, like mattered less because I'd already proven myself as a writer. Like I knew even back then that there were some people who already felt like I was the best journalist in the space. And like, actually I'd won an award now that I think like, I remember, yeah, within like nine months after I started covering this, there was some kind of like blockchain journalist award or whatever. And I remember I couldn't believe that I was even nominated because I was like, I haven't even been covering this for a year. And like, there are all these journalists who've been covering it for years. And then I actually won. And then I was like, oh my God, like, whoa, like people like my work. And so again, when, you know, later when I started the podcast, then it, it felt like they, they already knew that I did good stuff. And so the fact that maybe some of them might've been surprised that I was a woman, like th- that wasn't a, a factor anymore because I already kind of proven myself. So for people maybe who don't start that way, I, I actually feel like it really just comes down to doing good work. You know, it's like, cause let, let me put it this way. The, the way that I'd proven myself with the articles, Forbes at that time had pictures of all the writers on the pages. So even back then, like they knew that I was a woman and that I was writing about it. But despite, you know, maybe being a minority in that regard, like, you know, it didn't matter. They still, because the work was good, like they ended up following me. And so honestly, I would say have fun with what you're doing, like follow your curiosity and then that will make your product good. And that's really, really so important. Like, like, even that question before about like who I admire, remember I, I said, well, I actually, I don't even mo- like I admire them, but I don't want to show after them. <laughs> um, so it's really just about like maybe having your own vision and having your own voice and just believing in yourself. Um, and I feel like, yeah, that that's, that's a huge part to making your show good. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. It's a combo of like being so good that they can't ignore you and just also being yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Because people uh, I- can tell if you're not being yourself. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Uh, I think this would be, this is the perfect place to end. Um, thank you so much for just sort of like bringing a, such a different viewpoint to everything we've had so far. Um, and then since we're publishing on both sides, any last closing words from, from your side? No, I guess, you know, I just hope that it's uh, been helpful for all the podcast fellows and I'm really honored that you asked me to share my thoughts. Awesome. Yeah, no, it has. And thank you again so much for coming to ODP. Um, and with that, uh, thank you all. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about the On Deck Podcaster Fellowship, check out the show notes. This episode of Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Nuss, Mark Murdoch, and the On Deck Podcaster Fellowship. Thanks for listening.